Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person. And I appreciate you. And I know exactly what you like. All at the same time. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, the zen seeker, the artist, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. A gifting moment is always around the corner. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Gift easy with Gift Mode on Etsy. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. From CBS News, this is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. What you see, Michael, from the focus groups is a little bit deeper understanding of the cocktail that's leading not just to support for Trump, but violent support for Trump. What you have in The Great Replacement is this idea that people who have built their whole lives a certain amount of stuff, a certain amount of things, a certain amount of advantages, they see that this is all now vulnerable to be lost to who they see as undeserving people. And they see that what's the reason this could happen is because there are corrupt, immoral leaders who are doing that willing to basically have them lose everything that they and their families have worked for in order to make some short-term political gain. Bob Pape is a professor of political science at the University of Chicago and the director of the Chicago Project on Security and Threats. Bob has been on our show before, and he joins us today to provide us an update on his research on political violence here in the United States. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Bob, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. It's great to have you again. 
Uh, thank you, Michael. Always glad to be here. So, Bob, as you know, we want to get an update on your research on attitudes toward political violence in the United States, particularly as we approach the midterms. And, you know, quite frankly, not far behind those will be the campaign for the 2024 presidential election. So, you know, perfect time to get an update on what Post is doing in this realm. So, Bob, what I really want to do is I want to start with your research findings and then transition to sort of the implications of those findings, if that makes sense to you. Perfect. And I think of your research as, maybe you don't think of it this way, but I think of your research as kind of being a triad. You know, your work on those individuals arrested for their actions on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol is one. The surveys that you've done is number two, and then the focus groups you've done is number three. So I want to ask about each of those. Let's start with those arrested at the Capitol. How many cases are now in your database? Have there been any changes in your findings with regard to those individuals? And can you review those findings with us? Absolutely. Michael, I think that's a perfect uh, way to think about it, that triad. So we have 862 individuals in our database who have been charged with various offenses uh, related to breaking into the Capitol. That's up to date as of August. We update them about every six weeks or so. So we'll do another round of updates soon. But the cases have slowed down, of course. So the, the change is, is not very great on a month by month basis. The bottom lines have not changed. The bottom lines are that we face not just a political threat to our democracy, but a violent political threat to our democracy. This is coming mainly not from a foreign actor. I'm not saying that Russia has not been involved with trying to interfere with our elections, but this is not the main issue. It's also not coming mainly from militia groups like the Proud Boys or Oath Keepers, although we see those in the news all the time. Those groups number at most over the last 10 years, something like 40,000 people. Rather, this is coming from millions of Americans in the mainstream who believe that their political goals are so important that they take precedence over the outcome in our elections. This is a new problem. It has roots in, of course, our politics, our racial issues going back decades, so you could say that this is an old book, but with a very new chapter. We're used to thinking of extremism coming from the fringe. We're used to thinking of extremism as coming from fringe social media. We're used to thinking of extremism as coming from people with very little to lose. This is the opposite in this case. What we are seeing is extremism has moved into the mainstream. The individuals who broke into the Capitol on January 6th, only 14% of them are members of violent extremist groups like the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys, which means 90% are not. Over half of those who broke in are CEOs, 
they're business owners, they're from white collar occupations like doctors, lawyers, architects, and accountants. And yes, we know the difference between being self-employed and the business owner or CEO of an operation with more than five to 10 employees. So we, we are using those terms the way the Department of Labor uses those terms. Uh, you can go to our website, CPOST, the Chicago Project on Security and Threats. There is a publicly available online database. If you just go to our website, you will find it through all the different reports we have. But the fact of the matter is, what you see when you look at those individuals is that they are middle class, they are 92% white, 86% male, and they are coming from the counties in the United States that Biden mostly won, not that Trump mostly won. Now, these are Trump supporters for sure. They broke into the Capitol to stop the transition of power from one presidency to another, essentially to keep Trump in office. But they are coming not from the most rural, the reddest districts in America. They are coming overwhelmingly from the most diverse urban districts in America, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, not Southern Illinois, New York City, not upstate New York, Philadelphia, not the middle of uh, central Pennsylvania. They're coming from Houston. They're coming from Dallas. They are coming from Democratic strongholds, mostly over half from Democratic strongholds that Biden comfortably wins and Democrats comfortably win, but they're a minority in these situations. And so they are also seeing they are on the front lines of racial change and demographic change. So the number one characteristic of these counties, aside that produced the insurrectionists that broke into the Capitol, is that they are the counties losing the most white population in the United States. Now, so far, listeners here will have heard most of that before, a little bit of update with the uh, new numbers. But what's really new since I've been on before is that we've had some data points in the real world which confirm what I'm saying. So I just said that a big risk factor is for this issue of the great replacement, motivating political violence, is living in a county losing the most white population. That's a fairly clear statistic that many of your listeners would be able to track. Well, the Buffalo shooter is a data point in this regard. So in May, as your listeners will know, a white individual who deeply believed in the Great Replacement and wanted to stop the replacement of whites by minority blacks and other minorities, left his home county in Broome County, New York, drove three hours to Buffalo, New York, and killed 10 African-Americans as they were standing in line to buy their groceries. Well, what's significant about this is, number one, we know he was a believer in the Great Replacement, this idea I've been talking about, because he posted this online. You can't miss it. But number two, Broome County. Broome County is one of the counties in the whole country losing the most white population since 2010. 
The actual numbers in the county are basically flat at about 200,000 to 2010 to 2020. What's changed is they have lost a fantastic number of non-Hispanic whites who, of course, have been changed with demographic change with minorities. So he is right on the front line, so to speak, of seeing demographic change happening right in front of him and steeped in, of course, these political narratives that he's hearing from politicians, that he's hearing from very popular media figures about the consequences of the Great Replacement. And so you put those two things together and you have really quite a dangerous cocktail. And I've been saying this on your show now several times, but now we're really seeing data points, of course, happening you know, after the understanding that are confirming this understanding, Michael. So, Bob, let's move to that second piece of the triad, the surveys, the polling you've done. Let's start by you reminding us of the quality of those surveys. These are as good as one gets with surveys, right? That's exactly right, Michael. So these are not just surveys of lists of individuals. These are nationally representative surveys uh, done to the highest degree of quality that we can possibly do. We do them with NORC at the University of Chicago, which is the most respected academic polling agency in the world. It's of the same quality as Gallup, of Ipsos, does plenty of surveys for the AP, Washington Post, New York Times, CBS, also uh, the White House, the administration. So now the way these surveys are done is very important to understand. When I say it's a nationally representative survey, NORC starts with a panel of 40,000 individuals who are matched to dozens of demographic factors in the national population of adults of 258 million adults. And this is done with statisticians. This is done, they're basically a giant building with 600 people. And this is mostly what they are doing. And then they refresh that panel by replacing that panel every month or so with a new portion so that it's a constantly refreshing panel so that you have a panel of 40,000 that is as representative of the country as can possibly be. Now, from that 40,000, we then draw randomly thousands of people. The most recent survey that we did just three weeks ago that was fielded September 9 to 11, 2022, we drew 3,000. It was just about 3,100, actually, randomly from this 40,000. So that allows us then to extrapolate the findings from the 3,000 that we randomly sampled to not just the panel of the 40,000, but to the large population of 258 million in the United States. These are fantastically expensive panels and surveys to do, but we've been fortunate since I've been here, Michael, that the Pritzker Military Foundation and some others have come in to support this work at the Chicago Project on Security and Threats at the University of Chicago. And we are now able to do these every three months. So we are able to do a change. We can track change, and you'll hear some important information about that. We're able to expand and cover not just the right, but also the left. That's very, very important. 
And we're also able to probe more deeply into the impact of events, such as, say, the raid on Mar-a-Lago. So we will be able to have a fuller, richer picture on a more regular basis over the, certainly the next year. And that is thanks in part to shows like this, which have helped us to get the word out on the importance of these super high quality surveys. And so I'm glad to talk about the findings, but I just want to give you the baseline of the surveys. So Bob, what are the latest findings from the surveys? Yeah, the latest finding from the survey, the nationally representative survey that we did uh, just three weeks ago, that's uh, fielded September 9 to 11, 2022, are that uh, 5% of American adults, that's the equivalent of 13 million people, agree that the use of force is justified to restore Donald Trump to the presidency. This is a large number of people, 13 million people. There is a larger pool, more than double that size, who are actually ambivalent about whether the use of force is justified to restore Donald Trump to the presidency. And that number of ambivalent is also concerning. Any of your listeners who are working for politicians, and I know because I've been briefing quite a few politicians, well, the politicians will immediately see the importance, not just of the 13 million, but of the larger number who are ambivalent, because that is how politicians think. They are trying to move ambivalent into their camp. What's the number of the ambivalent folks? They're over 25 million. So just a significant number in the ambivalent. So it's really quite concerning, Michael, that you have both the ambivalent and you have those who are in that red category of, of agree that the use of force is justified to restore Donald Trump to the presidency. Now, in this survey, we went a bit further because, again, we have more support so we can do more. And we stress tested what people mean when they when we ask them about the use of force. Yeah. What do they mean? What do they mean? Yeah. Yeah, they might be thinking, well, we're just talking about yelling or, you know, yeah. So what we did in the survey, and I'll talk about this in the focus groups as well. What we did in the survey is we broke that 3000 into two sub samples. So we asked one sub sample the question, just as I phrased it, use of force justified to restore Trump to the presidency. We asked the second sub sample that question with adding the words even if some people are injured or killed. So that allows us to compare those two samples and see, are they really different? That is, once you clarify for people that when we say use of force, it means people will be killed, does that change their mind? Does that deter them? And stunningly, it's 5% and 5%. That is, it's the same numbers. That what this means is that the when we use the phrase, the use of force, this is not just using the phrase violence or contentiousness, that we really are zeroing in on the use of force a la something like January 6th. And so this is extremely important to see that these 13 million here are uh, fairly hardcore supporters of the use of force or Donald Trump. What do the surveys say is motivating these people to take this position on the use of force? 
Yeah, so we see two factors, and we've seen this now in our surveys across the board. So this is actually our fifth nationally representative survey. And these two factors just continue to be the dominant factors. The biggest factor, number one, which over 60% of the 13 million agree with, is the idea of the great replacement. This is the idea that the Democratic Party is deliberately replacing the current white electorate with new, more obedient minority voters from the third world. This is essentially a racial issue where great replacement is about the fear that whites will become second-class citizens and subordinate in in the United States. Some of the same things, Bob, you hear from the people that were actually arrested at the Capitol on January 6th. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So so what we, we see, so we have tracked the stated motives of those who have been arrested in our reports on our website. We've studied their remorse statements. So if people will go to our website, they'll see a variety of reports about what we know about the motives of those who broke into the Capitol on our Post website at the University of Chicago. And yes, this is right in line with what we're seeing. But those are, of course, more anecdotal. They're not systematically collected. The difference here is with the nationally representative surveys, we have far more reliable information. And we can do things like statistically test, not just is this the belief of the 13 million, but how does that compare to the other portion, the larger portion of the population that is not violently supporting Trump. And you can see that this is a statistically significant separator between the, call it the peaceful part of the population, and the violent support for Trump. And that's something you can't really do with just simply counting up statements by the insurrection. It doesn't mean that's not helpful, but the surveys just allow for much greater confidence that this is actually a driving factor. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Bob Pape. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. So the great replacement theory is one motivation that you see in these surveys. What's the second? The second motivation is the idea of the QAnon cults. This is the held by just under half of the 13 million. It's also a statistically significant separator of the 13 million violent supporters of Trump from the rest of society. This is the belief as our wording, and I'm giving you the wording in the survey, that a a group of satanic worshiping pedophiles is running the U.S. government. Now, this, Michael, if I could, would be an excellent time to talk about and segue into our focus groups, the third leg of the triad. 
Sure, because this sounds weird, right? This sounds weird. Yeah. Exactly. So this is where focus groups can really start to clarify. So no matter what you do on surveys, you are limited by the single sentence nature, or maybe you can give a paragraph, but you're you're not actually talking to people who are filling out surveys. We know that. <laughs> we understand that. Uh, so it was very important to have gone further than the survey analysis to do what are called ethnographic focus groups here. And the way we've done this at CPOST is different than the usual town hall method your listeners will be watching on, say, CNN or read in the New York Times. The way pollsters do focus groups for political polling and for the newspapers is they get a group of people together and then they basically have them shout at each other. <laughs> and then they see how how many yeah. disagree? How yeah. many are on one side? How many on the other? Well, we already know that from our surveys. What we did is a different type of method. What we did is we focus group people after they filled out our survey. So we already know where they come in on use of force for Trump, great replacement, QAnon cult. And then what we did is we bundled them together in like-minded groups. So they're not shouting at each other. They're in a situation where once they get a little comfortable in the group, they discover within about five minutes that they're with like-minded people. So they just start talking. And the truth is, Michael, you can't really stop them. <laughs> they, they love the idea that they're not being shouted down. And uh, once that happens, this goes on for 90 minutes and then they don't want to leave. <laughs> they don't want to stop. What do they say in these focus groups? Yeah. So number one, it confirms that the use of force does mean something like January 6, where people will be injured or killed. So that that is number one. Number two, the great replacement is what we think it means, which is that there is a group of haves who are about to lose what they have to have nots, especially in a racial context, not just a political polarization context of Dems and Republicans. But number three, really helping to understand QAnon. Many of the people that toggle that box on the QAnon cult, once you get them in conversation, they'll say, well, it's not exactly that I think there is a satanic cult. I don't really know these people, so I don't know that. What I think is that there are especially democratic political leaders willing to associate with known pedophiles for personal gain. And then almost to a person, they'll talk about Jeffrey Epstein and they'll talk about mm -hmm. Bill Clinton and Prince Andrew and, and Bill Gates and others getting on the Lolita Express, I'm quoting from them, with Jeffrey Epstein in order to get personal benefits, but knowing full well that he's been accused of all this awful things with underage girls. And, um, but doing it anyway, because, and so what they'll then say is that, well, these individual leaders are uh, so committed to their own personal gain that they will harm people and hurt people to get themselves ahead. So they are, quote, as good as uh, satanic worshiping pedophiles, even if not technically so. So what you then see, Michael, from the focus groups is a little bit deeper understanding of the cocktail that's leading not just to support for Trump, but violent support for Trump. You see, what you have in the Great Replacement is this idea 
that people who have built their whole lives a certain amount of stuff, a certain amount of things, a certain amount of advantages, and their families have been, done this. Their families moved to the United States from overseas, so they are, they recognize right away the, their their immigrant background. But they see that this is all now vulnerable to be lost to who they see as undeserving people. And they see that what's the reason this could happen is because there are corrupt, immoral leaders who are doing that, willing to basically have them lose everything that they and their families have worked for in order to make some short-term political gain. So it's that idea that the corrupt leader is intentionally willing to do this is making for some really quite virulent anger, if you see what I mean. So that it's not, I think it's a mistake to just keep thinking about, well, the folks who have the violent support for Trump, well, these are just a version of the deplorables, or they're the losers, or they're people we're just going to dismiss here. Because by the way, when we do that, we, we do two things. Number one, we don't really understand what their anger is. And then number two, once we think about people as just simply deplorable and irrational, there's really very little policy options here except use of force against them or arresting them. And that just makes the matter worse because when they hear themselves being described as deplorable and irrational and so forth, they know that right away. They know that just means, well, what's happening is the other side is just going to want to use force against us. And that makes them feel even more justified in their support for force, because then they start to see it as coming out of self-defense. The focus groups really did help to deepen our understanding of, of sort of the, that, that violent support for Trump. Yeah. You mentioned in the survey that you did some interesting work on views about the appropriateness of violence on the far left as well. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so one of the big things that we've been able to do with these more thicker, expanded expanded surveys is that we've started to be able to now survey the possibility of violent sentiments on the left. Now, let me just take a moment and explain, though, why survey violent sentiments in the country? Uh, it's important to see that this kind of community support for violence is like wildfire, understanding wildfires. When we have wildfire season, we have combustible material, dry wood, that can be set off by lightning strikes. And the way we know it's more dangerous, a more dangerous season, is because we can measure the size of the dry wood, that combustible material. And if it's getting bigger or smaller, that's how we know it's more or less dangerous. Well, that's the same with studying violent sentiments in the mainstream of the population. This allows us to get a measure of the dry, combustible material that could be touched off by a lightning strike. But it doesn't predict the lightning strike. It just means this is a a dangerous thing. Well, what we have been talking about so far is just the violent sentiments on the right. We're now able to see violent sentiments on the left as well. And what we see is that, again, a disturbingly large number of individuals will say that the use of force is justified for causes, grievances, that we naturally associate with the left, such as against the police to stop police brutality against minorities. This is very important to see that there are violent sentiments 
on the on the left, they number about the same size or maybe a little higher as the uh, than violent sentiments on the right. Uh, we'll be doing more work in our future surveys to sort of fine tune this this balance. But this is extremely important because we also ask questions about the Dobbs decision, use of, of force to restore women's right to abortion, and this too yields support on the left of somewhere around 9 or 10%. And so this is what we are seeing is that we are moving into a world where we have the potential for violence on the right and on the left. Now, I would argue that we're still in the world where the danger is mostly coming from the right. And why is that? It's because we are seeing individuals, political leaders, and we're seeing uh, media figures deliberately willing to court and stoke that violence sentiments. And those are the lightning strikes. A good example of this is the raid on Mar-a-Lago. So what happened on August 8th, as your listeners know, is the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago at 7 p.m. On August 8th, Trump was the one who announced to the world that that raid occurred. He did this on True Social on a post, but in a very aggressive posting here, claiming he's the, he's the victim, the FBI is overreaching. Well, this immediately led to a change we can pick up and track precisely on, on social media of the number of posts and tweets with the phrase civil war. Before Trump's posting at 7 p.m. August 8th, the average number of tweets on Twitter with the phrase Civil War was 500 an hour, uh, going back weeks. Afterwards, it immediately shot up, uh, not just a few percent, but 3,000 percent to 15,000 per hour and stayed high for a long time. This is what's underneath generating all those threats to the FBI. But it's also not simply... A social media phenomenon, because what you saw here was you saw that there had to be already millions of individuals already primed to support violence for Trump to have that kind of instantaneous reaction. And that is what we see, the cocktail we see coming from the right, which is we don't just have the violent, the combustible material. But we have individuals here who are lightning strikes, and they're doubling down on their lightning strikes. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. So, Bob, I want to finish up here with some, you know, kind of big, big picture questions. 
you've painted a picture of of a highly combustible situation, right? On the right all by itself, and then you mix in the left, and, you know, it gets pretty scary here. So I want to ask you, how fragile is our democracy? How does it compare to other times in American history when our democracy has been shaken a bit? How do you think about that question? So I think our democracy is at a precarious moment, Michael. I think our democracy is the most fragile it has been. And I think that may sound like an overstatement, but the last time we saw large numbers of middle-class whites involved with supporting political violence in the United States was in the 1920s. And what we saw in the 1920s was that our two-party system effectively was a shock absorber and a buffer to that. So the early part of the 1920s, we had the rise of the second KKK with millions of middle-class Americans, including business owners, joining this movement. By the end of the 1920s, this had basically dissipated and the shock absorber was the two-party system, which sort of basically diluted those sentiments. In the 1960s, we saw a lot of violent protests on the left, But again, we saw shock absorbers in our two-party system that essentially diluted that over time. So there were scary moments, but they didn't last very long. The big difference with today is that the two-party system is not acting as a shock absorber. It's itself acting as an ingredient to foment or encourage violence because What you're seeing on the one side of the party, the Republican Party, are efforts to increase in the leadership of the party individuals who support those violent sentiments. And this is happening not just with Donald Trump himself, the leader of this movement, but it's also happening with those who he is supporting. And he is deliberately supporting individuals who are willing to basically overturn a democratic result, look the other way when others are using violence to overturn that democratic result. Well, this is very different, Michael, than we're used to before, because again, we're used to thinking of the two-party system as the shock absorber of our political extremism. Now, the problem is you have it not just political support for violence in the mainstream, but you have political support for violence at the top edge of the leadership of one of those two parties. And that leadership supporting the violent sentiments is growing. So as we go forward here, this is a precarious moment. So, Bob, what is what is a worst case scenario look like? I know you've you've made some analogies to both. Northern Ireland in the late 1960s and to the Balkans in the 1980s. How bad could this get? We don't have a crystal ball, Michael, going out. Once we go down this road of political violence in the mainstream, we can look forward a year or so with some high confident understanding of what are the the real risks in front of us. If we start to extend out five years, 10 years, the range of outcomes just becomes too great. And I think they will, of course, include very scary outcomes. So this is what you're seeing in some of the newspapers, which are trying to look past into after 2024 and 2028. And the further out you try to forecast, of course, you're going to get more truly nightmare scenarios. I think that's just a mistake. 
I think what we need to do, and this is, you know, what happens in, say, the CIA or the DHS or intelligence, is we need to look in front of us about as far as we can highly confidently forecast, which I think is about a year or so out. And so what I think we are facing in the next year, the biggest risk are for violent political protests of a mass nature that become violent. I'll uh, think of a, of a January 6th level of violence, but for uh, several different potential flashpoints. Flashpoint number one are the consequences of elections here, the midterms. These midterms are going to be highly consequential because they will determine who controls the House of Representatives and also the Senate, but the House. And why does that matter? It's because it determines whether or not there will be impeachment proceedings against President Biden and others in the administration starting almost immediately. Marjorie Taylor Greene was just literally in Nevada. Your listeners can go and listen to her 13-minute clip in her speech just a few days ago saying this is exactly the agenda. The agenda is win on November 8th, impeach by Thanksgiving, (laughs) or start the movement to impeachment by Thanksgiving. And you will hear her just articulate this without any uh, loss of clarity. This means that this is a potential quite precarious outcome here. And so we have to be concerned about violence. And this could happen on either side, because either side in these close elections could become upset, which is why it would be extremely important for DHS to start thinking about how to take steps, not for election security, which they do great, but for clarifying election fraud claims after November 8th. So this is what we did not do after the vote in 2020. We just let the court system handle it and everybody just said, well, the courts will decide and of course the public will follow the courts. No, we need to recognize the public needs to see transparently what's happening. And this was something that I believe DHS should be thinking about now, not wait until we have a problem and then try to figure it out then. The second scenario that we have to worry about is the indictment of Trump. Uh, So in our polling, in our surveys, we see the equivalent of 7% of American adults think the use of force is justified to prevent prosecution of Trump for mishandling classified documents. That's actually higher than that 5%. It's still within the margin of error, so it could be still the same, but it's definitely another tactical flashpoint. And it's important for DOJ to get out in front on this. With the raid on Mar-a-Lago, DOJ effectively let Trump announce to the world what happened, and so just did nothing to prevent or think through what would happen as the consequences of that raid. Well, here with the indictment coming here, this is a very different world. And so this is very important for DOJ to take very, very seriously, not just whether to indict, but the whole atmospherics around which this is going to occur. And that's just going to be extremely important as we go forward. Bob, a couple of really quick final questions, which we need to do fast here. You've had a lot of interest from the executive branch and Congress, and I know that's been growing, and I know you can't talk in detail about those conversations, but I just wanted to let people know that there's a lot of interest in your research, and it's starting to spread to other countries. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. So I just spent, you're quite right, Michael, and I can't talk about that. It's a tremendous honor to have academic research taken this seriously in the United States. Germany just brought me to Berlin for a week of discussions with the high levels of the German government. 
They are worried about the rise of violent populism all of the 1930s and are thinking seriously about a project based around these methods. And this is important to see that other democracies, not just an American problem, although we're facing it pretty severely, other democracies are facing a similar set of stressors. And unfortunately, this could turn out to be the real change in the next four or five years from what we're talking about right now. And then last question, is anyone else doing research similar to yours? Well, there are other folks um, who are doing this, Michael, but it's, uh, keep in mind, we've been doing, we do, we started very early. We have very precise questions. We have these questions now that we can use as tracking. Others um, have come in here, but are still mostly thinking about this from a, a horse race, a political horse race perspective. So it is the case that there is a small but growing circle of scholars in the United States focusing on American political violence that is growing. And if any of your listeners want to help us uh, grow this at CPOS, please do. We need that support to make that grow. But it has not been the case that we have studied this problem in America for since the 20s. So, of course, we don't have the organization in the academic world, just like we don't have um, things organized in government um, to, or in the media to really understand our new problem. Bob, thank you very much for joining us. This has been an incredibly important conversation, and we'll continue it down the road. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Always appreciate it. That was Bob Pape. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.